you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, find Genesis chapter 38, continuing in our journey through the book of Genesis together. And this week, it's a little, it's one of those weird passages of the Bible. I don't mean anything negative by that. I love God's Word, but Oftentimes, especially when we come to the book of Genesis, we're diving into a culture that's very different from ours with practices and things that are very different from ours. So it might take a little bit of work to bridge the gap between our, our culture and theirs. So I'd encourage you to dive in, but God has an incredible word uh, for us through Genesis chapter 38. So with all that in mind, let's dive in. Genesis chapter 38. This is what the word of God says. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. Then Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as to not give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and, pu- and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hira the Adullamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garment and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and she sat at the entrance to Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, And she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away. Taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. 
And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Anayim by the roadside? They said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I've not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and she did not, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. This is the word of God. George R. Stewart was an American author and a historian who wasn't afraid to write of the sordid details of American history. And one of his best-known books is titled Ordeal by Hunger, which deals with the true story of the Donner Party and their dark and difficult journey from California to the Midwest during the days of the American Revolution. And if you know much about history, the Donner Party was anything but a party. And here's what he wrote about the gruesome events of their journey. He said this, For a taboo always allures with as great a strength as it repels. For a taboo always allures with as great a strength as it repels. That the scandalous both attracts our attention and encourages our rejection. Think of it like the, like the car crash you just can't look away from, or like everything you see on the evening news. It is a taboo that both allures our attention with as great a strength as it repels what we know inside to be right and wrong. And this morning's passage both allures us and repels us at the same time. This isn't one of those stories that you'll see in the child's picture book Bible, at least not any I've seen writes, this is dark, raw, painful, and seemingly hopeless. And some of you may relate to that because that may be how your life feels right now. And it's a reminder to us that life often can feel that way, dark and raw and seemingly hopeless. Recall what happened last week as we saw how dysfunctional Jacob's family was. We saw that he had 12 sons through four different women, and that the 11 sons sold their brother Joseph into slavery. They were jealous over Joseph and over how Jacob had favored him over the rest, so they, cover, they sold him, then they covered up the betrayal by staging a murder scene and making their father think that he had been murdered. This was a dysfunctional family. 
And in these chapters, we're really seeing the fruit of Jacob, the father's sins. We see why God did not design men to marry multiple women at once. There was all sorts of conflict between not only the wives, but the kids. This is why favoritism is something the Bible warns us against and will be a poison to you and to your family. And Jacob is now in mourning in the pit of despair as Joseph was thrown into the pit and taken to Pharaoh's house as a slave. We saw that last week and it was almost like the tension had built, the crescendo on the soundtrack was building. And then it goes dark and says, meanwhile, and we get to look at the story of Judah. And we begin to, we begin to get the feeling that Judah, who really was almost a supporting actor, has a major role to play in the story. Last week, I said that Judah was the second oldest brother, but I misspoke. I actually was wrong when I said that. He's actually the fourth born through Leah, which was Jacob's first wife. And in this passage, it begins to move to Judah and his family. And this chapter is here to show you what sin will do in your life. Recall that Paul, reflecting on the Old Testament, he wrote this. Paul wrote this. Now these things, he he just listed off right before there's all these events of the Old Testament. He said, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So this passage is here as instruction for us. And it is a picture, it is instruction, it is a rule book on how to ruin your life. And this passage, out of the ashes of ruining your life, it also offers the hope of how to redeem your life. But we've got to see the bad news first. Let's start. Let's see. How does Genesis 38 teach us how to ruin our lives? First, we ruin our life by doing what feels good. You want to ruin your life? Live to do whatever makes you feel good. Look what happens in verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. So Judah has just helped sell his brother, deceive his father, and then he's going to take a road trip to a foreign nation. He's likely weighed down by the guilt and the shame, so he's got to get out of town. He goes to Adullam and spends time with a guy named Hira, who we learn in verse 12 was his friend. And he is in a Canaanite region with a Canaanite idolater. And friends, there's already a lesson here for us, isn't there? Be careful who you are friends with. Let me tell you some bad advice you've been given. You've been told that you need to be friends with everyone. No. That is not biblical advice. Sure, you're to love everyone, You're to be kind and friendly as you're able with everyone, but you are not called to be in a relationship of influence and trust and bearing your heart with every single person in the world. You are not called to be in an influential relationship with everyone. Consider what might have happened if Judah didn't have this friend. Consider how his life might have been different. Be careful who you befriend. And let me tell you something, just because you want to is not a good enough reason. And I just want to be friends with him. So, you want a lot of things that aren't good for you. Or even if they provide you attention, 
It's not a good enough reason to be friends with them. Or because they're fun. That really might not be a good reason to be friends with them. Friends, through this friendship, Judah was being influenced by the culture around him when he should have been influencing the culture around him. And this doesn't just impact Judah in a small and insignificant way. While he's down hanging out with his buddy, he finds a wife from the wicked nation. Look at verse 2. Then Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. And so he's taking this wife among the Canaanite people, which is something he knew he wasn't supposed to do. There's been warnings over and over and over again from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, now to Judah, not to do this. And the issue of forming a relationship with the Canaanite was not a matter of race, but of faith. He was borrowing the language of the Apostle Paul unequally yoked, not just in his friendships, but in his marriage Judah had been rebelling against the advice that had been handed down to him, marry in the Lord. And Judah was following the example of Esau, who came before him, who who also lived for whatever felt good. Hear this, compromise will never take just a small piece of your life. Idolatry has an insatiable hunger and it will eat your whole life. Judah does what feels good. He goes where he wants, he marries whom he wants, and he raises his kids where he wants. And they have three kids together, and they dwell in the town of Kezib, which may not seem like a big deal to us until you realize the name, what that, what that name means is falsehood or deceit. So notice that he goes from dwelling with his friend, just hanging out with his buddy, his idolater buddy, to settling down and raising a family in the city of lies. That escalated quickly, didn't it? And that's exactly how sin works for us. Judah engulfed himself fully in the culture and the religion of the Canaanites. And hear me, if you live for what feels good, you'll become a slave to your desires And unchecked desires will always lead you away from God rather than toward him. There's a culture out there today saying, man, if you just seek whatever you want, that's what freedom is. No, 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 no. You will be a servant or a slave to something. It will be, and even if it's your own inner desires, you will serve something. The whole idea the Disney movies gave you a follow your heart It's not really all that good of advice. The heart and the feelings can be a good compass. It can point you maybe to show you kind of where north is, but it's a terrible GPS. It can kind of give you, you know, that gut feeling that something's not right. It can kind of give you that. It can kind of tell you, well, especially when you're informed by the word of God and the spirit. But if you let your feelings give you step-by-step directions in your life, friends, it will not end you in a good Place. Judah should have followed God's word for his friendships and for his family. He should have considered the promises that God had given for generations to his family. He should have trusted that God was going to keep his word and know that God's reward was going to be better than anything the culture had to offer. Judah, what feels good does what feels good, going exactly the opposite direction and doing exactly what he knew he shouldn't do, and it takes him on a journey to ruin. And it will take you to the same destination. 
And Judah's wickedness doesn't just stay with him. We get a glimpse of his kids. Let's look at his son, Ur, who interestingly enough, there's actually kind of a Hebrew word play. If you knew Hebrew, that Ur is backwards for the Hebrew word for evil, which is kind of interesting. There's a little factoid for you. Verse 6, look what happens. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. That's what we get to know about him. Imagine that being you're out here at West End Cemetery, and you're walking around, and you see a tombstone that says, Wicked in the sight of the Lord, the Lord put him to death. That is how Ur is remembered. And this should be heavy for us because it tells us that the Lord is the one who brings judgment. That the Lord can even put people to death because he is serious about sin. And even his patience runs out. But second, we need to see that where and how we raise our children matters. Consider how Judah raises this child among the Canaanites with free access to Canaan, and then we somehow end up surprised that he became just like the Canaanites. If we give our children free access to the culture around them, we shouldn't be surprised when they end up like what they are around. If you're not discipling your children in the word, the world is discipling your children for you. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again, an hour on Sunday, and even an hour on Wednesday, is not enough to prepare and disciple your child in their faith. Even the, and we have a great blessing in this town of having great, godly, Christian teachers and administrators in our school, and that's a gift. But friends, even that's not enough. Parents, you have a calling on your life to train your children in the Lord. And that's going to look a lot of different ways, right? But if you want resources of how to do it, I'll let you know. I know there's parents here that get excited to talk about that with you and are doing this actively. But the lesson is is to let the son of Judah be an example of what happens to you when you let the culture do the discipling for you. If you live for what feels good, so will your kids, and you will be surprised how doing what feels good ends up in bad situations. For Ur, it puts him in the grave. You ruin your life by doing what feels good. Next, we learn that you ruin your life by doing what makes you rich. Ruin your life by doing what makes you rich. We meet Judah's second son, whose name is Onan. And something very interesting happens to him in verse 8 to 10 that can really only be described as sort of a PG-13 encounter. So let me give sort of just a flyover of what's going on there. Judah asks Onan to fulfill the ancient custom known as a, a liverite marriage. A liverite marriage. This was a practice you can read a little bit more about in Deuteronomy 25 or the book of Ruth with the kinsman redeemer if you're interested in reading a little bit more about this. But in this ancient custom, the unmarried brother-in-law would marry the widow of the older brother in order to provide a family and to provide protection. In these days, it would also provide legal implications on who could receive the inheritance, which typically went to the firstborn. 
So the firstborn's inheritance would be enjoyed by the widow, but then it would also be passed down to the children produced by this uh, arrangement. And Onan was worried that, his, that this son, though physically his, would be given special treatment, would be given a better lot in life due to getting this inheritance. And so Onan makes this public agreement to this arrangement, but then in private refuses to take part. He says, I'm not going to have a child with her. So Onan is selfish, not only to use Tamar, but not to keep his word. And so we see the same thing happen. Onan is put to death also. And we see Onan is driven by concerns over money and inheritance. He might have even secretly hoped that, well, if Tamar never has any children, I'm the second born. I'm the next in line to receive the inheritance. And hear this, if you are driven by a desire to be rich, you will be like Onan. You will be selfish and you will ultimately see people as tools for your own purposes rather than what they are. People that are far more valuable than anything you can fit in your wallet or in your bank account. This isn't to say that money is evil. We've got a whole, a whole culture of people that think having money is somehow a problem. No, 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 no. The problem is the love of riches is the root of all kinds of evil. If when money becomes your God, that's when it becomes a problem. It is a good gift, but a terrible God. And in his pursuit to have it all, Onan lost it all. And those who pursue riches ruin their life and follow the same path. And look how it impacts other people around him. Look what happens to Tamar, now twice widowed, in verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Wow, imagine being Judah, you're coming to your now twice widowed daughter-in-law and go, remain a widow and go somewhere else. How heartless of him. He says, go back home and wait for son number three to grow up and we'll try this again. I have no idea how old this third son might have been. That could have been a long time, or he probably was just saying this, you know, we kind of see, because he didn't really want to risk losing the third one, right? Judah was concerned the same thing would happen again, and rather than, one, trying to make sure his child didn't walk in the path of Ur and Onan, he just doesn't even try. He's like, well, I'm not even going to try to get him around good people, or maybe I, need to, maybe I need to move away from this region and get him with better influences. No, 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 he's like, I'm not going to worry about it. And rather than let her leave and marry another, or even... To let her live with him, he sends her back to the family to wait. You almost feel bad for Tamar here. He is stringing her along out of a desire to protect his son, but also I think he's wanting to protect his reputation and his, and his inheritance. He's like, I don't want her messing up everything I built here. And a desire for riches will not just hurt you in the long run, it will hurt those around you. If you want to ruin your life, make it all about what you can get. Make it all about the money and the cars and the success. 
Friends, all that is a good gift, but a terrible God, and it will ruin your relationships and leave you empty and alone. Be careful not to ruin your life by making you do, by doing whatever makes you rich. Because let me tell you, what's going to matter at the funeral is not how much stuff you have. You could have a gold-plated casket, but no one comes to visit you. Keep it in mind, you will ruin your life by doing whatever makes you rich. And then the story turns to Tamar, who, again, has been largely passive. She's taken matters into her own hands, and she lays a trap for her father-in-law. And here we see the third way to ruin your life. We see with Tamar, ruin your life by doing what keeps you secure. You ruin your life by doing what keeps you secure. I'm not going to go into all the gory details of this. There's some interesting things you could, you could read on this this week, uh, but I also would encourage you probably not to. Uh, but we read that Judah, he's headed on a trip with his brother Hira to see their sheep shearers. Now, again, maybe this is what people did on the way to their sheep shearers. Maybe this is a cover for his trip to the you know, ancient Near East Vegas he's going to go visit. I'm not really sure. And we learn his wife's died. Judah's a single man again. He's widowed. And Tamar is apparently very aware of what happens on these trips. He knows that while Judah's on his way to do this, he's going to stop by and visit a pagan temple, which was kind of like an adult club in the day, which is kind of interesting to think. The pagan temples were, were basically those clubs by the freeway that the adults know what I'm talking about, right? And we see in verse 14, look at this, look at this, look at verse 14. She took off her widow's garments covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, set at the entrance of Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. So she sees Judah's reneged on his promise. Shelah's not married Tamar. Tamar's been waiting this whole time, thinking this was going to happen. It's not happened. And so Tamar dresses in a way both to be anonymous and to grab her father's attention. And just consider how ironic this is. Judah, in chapter 37, had used Joseph's coat to deceive his father. And now Judah is being deceived with a woman wearing a cloak. Judah used clothes to deceive, and now clothes are being used to deceive him. What goes around comes around, right? And Tamar even convinces him to give her expensive gifts as, a, as collateral. He gives a young goat as payment. So there's payment exchanged here. But she also gets his cord and his staff and even his signet, which was a small cylinder seal that functioned like a stamp. It was sort of the way Judah would have identified himself in the world today and sort of signed his name. So He basically gives her his social security card, his credit cards, and all of his checks with his name signed on them. Young people, checks are what adults used to use to pay for things. I know some of you may not know what those are. But he he gives her access to everything to some woman he doesn't know because he wants a good time. Come on, Judah, you know? Like, you just want to shake the guy, don't you? Judah's lost his brother. He's lost his wife, he's lost his two sons and his daughter-in-law, and we're told in the text that he was comforted. And yet, look how he spends his comfort. 
Friends, God can give you supernatural comfort and you waste it on immorality. So there's a warning. God can give you comfort and you waste it in how you respond. And something wicked happened that night. And Judah and his friend later try to find this mystery woman to get his stuff back to no avail. He's got to get his social security card and all that stuff back from her, right? And then one day, Judah gets word about Tamar. Look at verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And look what Judah says. Bring her out and let her be burned. What a hypocrite. Judah was just hanging out at the club three months later with Tamar, though he didn't know that was who it was, and now he wants her to be burned over news of her immorality. And recall that Judah is part of the reason she's in this mess because he promised her a son, and now he suddenly cares about her love life. Judah deserved far worse, and so Tamar does a bold move next. Look at verse 25. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. She said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. She pulls out his stuff. She kept it and pulls out all this stuff. Judah, you are the father. This is like one of those middle-of-the-day soap operas or like the Maury Povich show happening in the book of Genesis, right? You are the father. And look what happens next, verse 26. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. So Judah has been exposed, and we're going to look at his response in a second. But we see that he sinned. He did not provide his son to her. He sinned by sending her away. He sinned by using her. And he sinned because he had the ability to provide for her, but he didn't. And notice his response. He says, she is more righteous than I. He's not saying that she is righteous, but that he really is the one to blame for some of what occurred here. That he is really far worse than she is. But Tamar sinned also. She tricked Judah. She committed immorality with him. And, and there's some commentators you can read that some think, well, Tamar might have had a noble desire to keep the line of promise going through the family of Judah I really think she did it because she wanted a man. In these days, a twice-widowed woman would have needed a man to stay secure. And so she was hopeless, and she was going to do whatever she could to have worldly security. And it's ironic that she risks her life in order to have potential security. Isn't that basically how sin is? It promises you something, then makes you put it on the line in order to think you're going to get it back? This is a tragic situation. Now she's going to be the mother of twins, and one day she's going to have to explain to them how Pepaw is really their father. Imagine that conversation. And if this were the end of the story, her life, by all measures, is over. She has ruined her life out of a desire to keep it secure. Those who try to save their life 
will lose it, Jesus says. But those who lose their life ultimately will gain it. This whole family needs counseling, right? And I hope it makes you feel a little bit better about whatever dysfunction might be going on in your life. You're not dealing with this, right? Judah and his son Ur lived for what felt good. Judah and Onan lived for what made them rich. And Tamar lived for what gave her security, and they ruined their lives and ruined their family in the process. But the good news is that the story doesn't stop there. This is not simply a story about how to ruin your life. It also tells you how to redeem your life. It also tells you how to redeem your life. Notice that, that, the, that we need to see first that you redeem your life by owning your sin. You redeem your life by owning your sin. Look at verse 26 again. Then Judah identified his stuff. He knew he was caught. She's got his social security number there, right? And she said, and he said, she is more righteous than I. Since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. This is a major turning point in Judah's life. He, he realizes Tamar was not righteous, but I'm even less righteous. I shouldn't even be in this Canaanite country, and I was not the father or the father-in-law that I should have been. And Judah comes face to face with his mistakes. And it tells you that if you've ruined your life, maybe you're in a cycle of ever-growing sin. First, the answer is not to play the blame game. He doesn't sit there and go, well, Tamar, why were you? To... He, he doesn't do that. Friends, some of us are so willing to blame others that if we just took ownership of our part in it, friends, we really begin to see victory and freedom. Notice he also doesn't try to justify himself. He doesn't try to somehow twist that he's right or go, well, you know, God gave me the promise to, to, to bear the promised seed that's going to save the world so I can do whatever I want. No, he doesn't play the blame game. He doesn't try to justify himself, but he owns his sin. He confesses and he seemingly repents. He doesn't ever do this again. Judah doesn't use Tamar anymore. He takes responsibility. And we're going to see that he's going to make the best out of a bad situation. And the good news is that as long as you have breath, if you are here today, that means God has given you time to own your sin and turn around. In fact, Judah's got an ancestor you may be familiar with. His name's King David. And his life was in ruins. And it actually was ruined for many of the same sins that plagued Judah. And what transformed David's legacy was that he confessed his sin and turned away from it. He actually wrote Psalm 51 as sort of a response to everything that he went through. And it really is sort of a handbook or a picture of what repentance looks like. Here's what Psalm 51 says. If you ever wondered what does it look like to repent, to confess your sins and to own it, here's what Psalm 51 tells us. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He's speaking to God here against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Then he prays later on, purge me with hyssop that I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
Friends, this is a lesson for us. Don't waste your life counting the sins against you. But rather, whatever has happened to you, it probably was wicked and inexcusable, but it doesn't excuse how you respond. And friends, some of us are so quick to try to make sure, to try to cover up something that we all already know. Let me let, me let you in on something. We all already know that you're a jacked up sinner. We already all know that. I don't know why you're trying to somehow hide that. The, the, the word of God tells us that. To the cross of Jesus already displays that. Why do we try to hide something that God has made clear? And then we're so often to cast the blame as if we sit on the throne of heaven as judge over all. And then we're quick to sweep our sins under the rug and think, well, what I did wasn't that big of a deal, but do you, do you know what they're doing down the pew for me? God, you really need to care about that. God, God will take care of them. You focus on you. Until we see our sins as something done by us, we will never experience freedom and forgiveness. Until we own our sins, there is no hope of you to redeem your life. Look what Psalm 32 says, just another psalm of David. Look what he says here. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. Look at, look at what happens when unconfessed sin is in your life. Then he says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And then it says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with the shouts of deliverance. Do you see the change that confession can do in your life? Friends, I know many of us, we think about confession and we think about the priest sitting in the box and you walking in and, and going, well, how long since your last confession? There's actually something very biblical about confessing your sins to another person. The good news is, is that we don't have to go to some priest in a box because the Bible says if you're in Christ, we are all priests of God. You can confess your sins to one another, which James chapter 5 tells us that you might be healed. Sometimes you feel this groaning and this heavy hand upon you because you simply need to open your mouth and confess what you know you need to confess. Confess it to God. Confess it to one another and find healing and freedom in the process. Redeem your life by owning your sin. And the passage ends with a word of anticipation and hope. Look at verse 27. Judah and Tamar give birth to twins. That's got to, that was an awkward a baby shower, you can imagine, right? When the time of her labor came, there were twins in the womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Perez means breach. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. And we learn that through Perez, this child of immorality, this child that in our world today probably would have been taken down to Nashville and aborted, 
It is through Perez that a king comes. Ruth chapter 4 tells us that it's through Perez that a man named Boaz is born, who becomes the main character of the book of Ruth, and that through Boaz would come King David, who, again, we've read a little bit about, but Matthew opens up his gospel, his telling of the story of Jesus with a genealogy, with a family history of Jesus, the Savior of the world. And look who's there in the family tree. Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. These are your memory verses that are down at the bottom for the week. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Here's the point. The invitation of Genesis 38 is to redeem your life by looking to the Savior. Redeem your life by looking to the Savior. Genesis 38 is a reminder that God can redeem your ruin. That the promised Messiah came through a line of ruined, dysfunctional families and through folks who were just plain jacked up. You know what the old sin says? Grace, grace, greater than all our sin. And friends, that Jesus is all about redeeming our ruin. He's lived a sinless life. He's died on the cross in our place and he's risen again on the third day so that broken and sinful people like Judah, like Tamar, like you could be forgiven and freed and restored and redeemed. See, friends, you've got yourself into whatever mess you're in. There's probably other factors in your life, but ultimately we see that the Bible places personal responsibility on you for how you respond to what has happened to you. You got yourself into whatever mess you're in, but Jesus is the only way out. And Genesis 38 is an incredible reminder that God doesn't forsake his promises just because we blow it. God kept his word to the family of Abraham through Judah. And if you are here today within the sound of my voice, that means God has not given up on you either. Whatever you've done, however you blew it this week, he has not given up on you. But God does have a day when his patience runs out. Ur and Onan are an example. And friends, it is true for you as well. In fact, all of us, if I can draw you a picture, here's, here's the situation you are in if you're outside of Christ today. That God has two hands. And with one hand, he is holding back. Death that is deserved for you. Not just death in this world, but eternal death. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And that he is holding that back because you're still alive today. You're still here. You do have an appointment with death. It's just not in your calendar. And you've got an appointment with God and you don't know when it is. With one hand, he's holding that back in patience and mercy and grace. And with the other hand, he's extended towards you saying, I have come to dwell among you, to live a perfect life. I've come to die on the cross and to rise again, to give you eternal life and eternal hope. And if you would, by faith, extend your hand, he would grab hold of you and show you mercy and freedom and forgiveness 
But the warning is that one day both hands are going to drop. You'll have no more opportunity to grab hold of the hand of mercy. And all that will await you is all that God has been holding back. And the question you'll have is on that day before God, what will your hope be? How will you answer for the life that you've lived? And today the invitation of Genesis 38 is to own your sin and look to the Savior by taking hold of his hand of mercy. He's able to redeem the ruin of Judah and his family, and he is able to redeem the ruin of your life as well. In fact, this is what the Lord's Supper's all about, right? That Jesus has come, his body broken, his blood shed, that we could have new and everlasting life. And what we're going to do is I'm going to pray here in a moment, and here's how you can prepare for what's next. First, if you're someone who's never trusted in Jesus, maybe you've gone through the church thing, maybe you've, you know, walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, but nothing really transformed your life. Maybe you've never had the moment Judah had of hitting rock bottom and looking up and seeing that God is your only hope. Friends, you can call on him right where you are. There's an altar here for you to pray. Maybe your life is in shambles and you need God to redeem the ruin of your life. You can come up here, pray at the altar. I'll be up here. You feel welcome to motion for me and I'll, and I'll pray with you. And it's an invitation to come to him while he may be found. For the rest of us, we can prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, prepare our hearts to, to have a second sermon preached through picture form that Jesus has come, he's lived for us, he's died for us, and he's risen again to give us new and everlasting life. Whatever business with God you need to do today, now's the time to respond. We're going to have a, someone come forward and just play some music in the background, have some quiet reflection for these moments ahead. So let's pray together. Father God, we're so thankful that you have loved us in our ruin. That you have loved us in our most broken selves, in our most sinful selves. At our darkest is when your light shines the brightest. And Lord, I pray now there are people here who have absolutely ruined their life in sin. I pray that you would right now prick them by the Spirit to call upon you in mercy, to own their sin and to look to you in faith and forgiveness. Lord, you will find them where they are. Lord, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, Judah, Tamar, whoever they are, you will meet them and you will save them. And in this moment, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, Draw our hearts and our affections toward you. Use this time of quiet reflection, Lord, to do what only you can do. Call people to the altar to pray who need you to do what only you can do. And Lord, prepare our hearts. Thank you that you've come to redeem our ruin by your grace for your glory. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.
And in this moment, we get to remember through the Lord's Supper that God is the one who redeems our ruin. Let me say a couple things as you prepare uh, to take the elements. Let me say this is something for those whom God has redeemed. If you do not today have assurance that Jesus is your Lord and Master and Savior, I'd encourage you just to leave the packaging right where it is in your seats. There's no judgment at all, but that this is something meant to be observed by God's people. And it's meant to ultimately be a message to you that what we've received you can get in on as well. This from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also he took the cup, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then he reminds us, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It is a message, a second sermon. It is God's picture for us of what he has done. It's been great to be together for worship. Again, you can get connected. The more we have going on back at the Connect Desk back there, we'd love to get you connected with Grace Marriage, with the men's group, the women's group, whatever it is. And we close, we sent out into the world with news that, that of redemption for folks in ruin that we're, we're around today. We close with a benediction from 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.